Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Buenos dias, hello, and welcome to the Global Marketing Show, my friends. I'm so glad you're back. We've got a very brilliant woman, Aitul Ersel, to speak with us today. But before I get into that, I just want to remind you that the Global Marketing Show is sponsored by Rapport International a translation agency that connects you to anyone anywhere in the world in over 200 languages with that 100% satisfaction guarantee. And today's tidbit that the rapport has provided us with is how dogs talk. So in the United States, we say to the little kids, what does the doggy say? And the little kid will respond, woof, woof. But if you speak Spanish, a dog says, wow, wow. And in Mandarin Chinese, a dog says, wang, wang. And in honor of our guest today, we're talking about dogs from Turkey and they say, how, how. So there's these little twists of culture that are really important when you're doing translation. So I told, welcome to the Global Marketing Show. Thanks, Wendy. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great. So a little bit about Aitul. She is an academician turned into a serial entrepreneur, and her field of expertise is image processing and machine learning. She has a PhD in applied mathematics. I told you she was smart. She's a professor. She sits on a number of boards, and she's the former president of IWF, the International Women's Forum. And I happened to meet her at the IWEC conference this year, because she's also an awardee of the International Women's Entrepreneurial Challenge. So I was so lucky that we sat next to each other on the bus and then have gotten to know each other. So Aitul, this is such a pleasure for me to have this chance to talk to you on the podcast. Thanks, Wendy. The pleasure is mine. Yes. So tell me about applied mathematics in professorship into becoming an entrepreneur what started that journey or what did you see was missing well i always wanted to be an academician i actually studied electrical engineering in undergraduate and did double major with math i really wanted to do computer engineering but at that time there was no computer engineering undergraduate in my university so this is like ancient times. And the closest thing was electrical engineering. So I was totally confused when I graduated. I, to some schools, I uh, applied to electrical engineering, some computer engineering, some math. And Brown University's applied math program seemed to be a good combination of all. And that's where I ended up going. For a long time, I was doing very theoretical work. Uh, but after I graduated, I worked at GM Research Labs, General Motors. And that's where, which really affected my future, because I had the pleasure of turning your ideas into products. And that was, you know, very satisfying. So I said, from now on, I'm going to do applied work. So when I returned to Turkey and became an academician, I was doing applied research. 
But university's job is not to develop products. I mean, you, we do the R&D and maybe the first prototype, but it was not being turned into products because companies need to have local expertise to turn to take the university technology developed at university and turn it into products. So you need intermediate technology companies, which made me an entrepreneur because we were doing a lot of applied work, but it was just staying in papers. It was not turning into uh, being used in industry. So I started a company with two of my graduate students, but it was a little early. At that time in Turkey, they didn't trust that a high-tech product would be developed in Turkey. So they were just using our, they were asking us for quotation and using it to bargain with foreign countries. So for a long time, we were doing free consulting. But over years, you know, we started building confidence and we started developing good products. And then I sold that company, my first company, to a German company, which was number one in Europe, number three globally in machine vision. And then together with the R&D manager of that company, we started my second company, my current company, Vispera. So that's sort of the journey going from academia to industry. Okay. And tell me about your current company or tell the listeners. Okay. It's a, again, image processing machine learning company, but focused on in the detail domain. So we work with either the CPG companies like Coca-Cola, Unilever, PNG, or with retailers. So we automate in-store monitoring. So we check retail assets like shelves, coolers, etc., for auto-stock and compliance issues like price compliance, promotion compliance, planogram compliance. So currently we're working in more than 35 countries with many global companies. Okay, so say I work for Unilever and I want to use your product. The reason I'd use it is I could put it into the stores that sell the product. So it could take no if the shelves are stocked or if I need to ship more or get, break it down into the... Okay. Well, we have actually two products. One is for CPGs, one is for retailers. For CPGs, the field personnel, I mean, they were doing this manually for many years. They have merchandisers who go and stock the shelves or they have salespeople who take orders. So instead of manually counting and checking all the compliances, they just take an image of the shelf they send us that image, we process it, and we give back reports. So we have two types of reports. We have either instant reports within seconds so that the person in the store can take an action. Uh, for example, they can go to the back room and replenish the products, or if the price tags are wrong, they change it, or if the layout of the shelf is not correct, they correct it. So we give them actionable insights. We tell them what to do. Or if it's a salesperson and if a product is out of stock or close to being out of stock, they can take an order. We also have a detailed dashboards for the back office people to analyze, you know, which products are problematic, which stores are problematic, what happens in a certain time period, etc., so that they can plan for the future to, to do better. The second product is for retailers. It's the same thing, but we have fixed cameras in the stores so we can continuously monitor what's going on. and take preemptive actions. Okay, so the, the second one would be fixed cameras in there so nobody has to go around and it does exactly. the same thing. It's giving live updates to the manufacturer of what's going on in the retail. Exactly. 
or to the retailer. For example, in one study we did with a major retailer, 50% of the products that were out of stock were actually in the store, but in the back room. So like for two months, the products were out of stock on the shelf, but the products were actually in the store. So it was really lost money, lost opportunity. So then at that point, your salesperson's not going in and counting things. Your salesperson is going in and saying, okay, let me help you with how you're going to stock shelves and move product right. around and, and much so more. So they strategic. don't even have to go to the store. I mean, we can integrate with like SAP or other systems. So automatically order can be created. Oh, I see. So does it take the salespeople or the manufacturer's rep completely out of the stores then? Well, I mean, they they still need uh, personal relationships and all that. So they still would go to the store, but not as frequently. And what are they doing? What are they tasked with besides stopping in to say hello? What are they doing when they're there? Well, I mean, it's mostly merchandisers who go to replenish the shelves. So they have to go there anyway. So when they go there, I mean, it just takes another minute to take an image and then know what needs to be done. Okay, so it's a way to improve the stores, manage the sales reps, and gather much more detailed information. Right. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, what a way to disrupt the whole process that's been there before. Okay, so you're in 34 countries. This is the meat of what I want to get into. You start in Turkey. You've now got the reputation that good products can come out of Turkey which I'm thrilled because I know how bright you are. So tell me, how did you start your international marketing? Actually, initially, customers came to us. I mean, we built a, a nice webpage only in English. And initially, before we actually did any marketing, we got some requests from potential partners or potential clients. In fact, our first invoice was not to Turkey. It was to a company outside of Turkey. So we started as an international born global company from the very first day. So how did they After, find you? You put you you developed this great product and you put up an English website. How did they find you? Like how would they even search for you or hear about you? I guess they were searching for image processing in store or in store monitoring or store auditing, you know, some keywords for these and they found us. It was interesting. And then of course we started once we start, for example, with Coca-Cola, we started in one country. Now we're working in 11 countries. So after a while, it gets easier. But at the beginning, the sales cycles were very long. And, you know, we didn't have budgets for marketing. It was it was tough. Okay. We didn't hire a salesperson like the first three, four years. So we weren't really doing proactive sales at the beginning. So it's only a little later that we started building a team and doing things more systematically. Okay, so you um, so you had people coming in, large companies that were trying to figure out how to do this, and then your growth really came from helping them enter different stores. Exactly. So where are you targeting your sales now? Right now, America is our biggest target. We initially started with our neighboring countries, I mean, we have some partners in like in South America. So we were doing business in South America, but we weren't doing business in North America. Two years ago, we opened a company in Chicago, a subsidiary. Last year, we opened a subsidiary in London. 
and we started building teams. We have a very experienced managing director in the US and a very experienced manager director in Europe. So now they're building their teams and it's going a little more systematically right now. But US is our biggest target. Right now it's only 2% of our revenue. And in fact, last year was the first year we got revenue from US. And this year we expected to uh, increase to like 20%. So who are so you targeting are in the U.S.? Well, we have some very strong partners and we started attending fairs. For example, last month I was in New York at the NRF fair, which is the largest retail fair. And we were in the Zebra booth, which is, who is our partner. And I'm sorry, um, which fair in New York? You, you cut out a NRF, little bit. National Retail Forum, I, I think. National so, Retail Forum, NRF. Okay. Yeah, and there was a lot of interest. We were the only company who did live demo. I mean, some of our competitors were there too, but we were the only company who did live demo and there was a lot of interest. So now we are following them up. Okay. And so the the retail forum was that, so that wasn't the manufacturers, that was actually the retail stores. It's mostly, yeah. I mean, there were some manufacturers who visited, there were like 40,000 people who visited the fair. A lot of them were retailers. This would be something that the manufacturer would buy into, but this is something that the retailer would put in their store to send the reports to the consumer product companies? Well, both to send it to uh, CPGs, also for their own purposes. Because, I mean, retailers, if, if an item is out of stock, retailer is losing customers too. So they're losing revenue and so... Yeah, it's very important for them too. Also, with the pandemic, e-commerce increased and they have to use physical stores to ship from. So it's important that they know real in real time what's available on the shelf so that they decide which store to ship it from or, you know, uh, whether they have enough product in each store. So yeah. it's very important for retailers too. Right now, we are working with Circle K in U.S., we're doing 10 stores right now. This is your opportunity to ask for referrals. What are your dream stores? Who would you like introductions to? Well, pretty much, you know, all the retailers like Walgreens, CVS on one side, Kroger, Walmart, Maverick on the other side. We had a lot of those companies actually attending at the NRF fair. So we are we have started talking to some of these uh, big companies now. Okay, so if anybody knows anybody at Walgreens or CVS, Walmart, Kroger, yeah, right. send them over. That's right. That's <laughs> Share right. this podcast with them because this could be game changing for them. Obviously, you speak English very well. Did you develop your software in English? And then yeah. how are you handling different languages? Um, well, in our company, uh, all our internal communications are in English too. So all our documents, all our presentations, everything is in English. That's our standard language. But the software is very flexible. We can easily customize it to any language. So in fact, we are doing that in South America. We're, it's in Spanish, in, you know, in every country. It's in local language. Oh, okay. So if whenever you get... Some just want it in English, but if they require it, it's easy to... It's, uh, it's limited vocabulary. So it's not really a big issue. 
Oh, good. Okay. So you were very smart and built it from the beginning with limited vocabulary that could be done. Right. Good. That's one of the big mistakes that I see with other tech companies that they don't think that through. And then later on when they're trying to sell, what have been some of your biggest challenges of selling internationally? Well, we, I mean, being a startup, you never have enough money. So we don't have resources for marketing. That's one of the challenges. And, and also finding hiring people, hiring good salespeople is very crucial. So we have hired and fired some people. You know, it takes some time to find the appropriate person. And you have to be, I mean, you have to physically get together and meet people. Right now with the pandemic, we all got used to remote meetings, but still physical touch is very important, I think, in any kind of relationship. So, you know, those are the challenges. Right. And how about, like, you don't sound like you're afraid to me at all, but a lot of people have fears of going internationally. You have yeah, anything? As, in as I said, we, we were born global from the very first day, so that I mean, we didn't even think of the alternative. In fact, our sales cycles were usually longer in Turkey than in other countries. They didn't trust us as much in Turkey, but now it's changing, of course. We were not really afraid. And I, I also lived in the U.S. for nine years. So I knew, I mean, I knew international life. I was always involved in international projects. So I wasn't afraid, really. How about mistakes? What mistakes have you made or would you do oh, over? Many, many mistakes. Nah. <laughs> the, the important thing is that you learn from your mistakes. Right. Uh, I mean, in the first company, I did more mistakes, some of them knowingly. For example, I knew that we had to focus and build a product, but to build a product, you have to spend money for, you know, several years. And when I started my first company, uh, there was really the entrepreneurial ecosystem didn't exist in Turkey. There were no angels, no VCs, and I didn't have enough resources. So we were doing projects instead of building a product because we just had to survive. And at one point I was saying, we'll go under if we keep going, doing projects, the more projects we do, the faster we'll go under because, you know, the, the type of projects we did were high tech and it's difficult to estimate the time it would take and all that. So doing projects was a mistake, but I mean, that was just because there was no alternative, just because we didn't have the money to do products. Uh, so how did you, you get the money to say, we're going to stop doing projects and going to focus on building? Well, that, that's when the German company who eventually bought my company, they came as a partner. So they injected some money to the company. That's when we started building products. How did you find them to be a partner with you? They're, actually, uh, there, there's one organization, European Machine Vision Association. I became a member. It was the most valuable 1,000 euro that I paid because it was 1,000 euro was the membership fee. And what, was the, what was the name of the organization again? European Machine Vision Association, EMVA. And they have annual meetings where only the C-level executives come to those meetings. And that's where I met the CEO of the company who eventually bought my company. 
Okay. So it really like fundraising was really difficult at that time, but it was meeting other business owners. That's really interesting because you hear about the different ways to fundraise and competitors, partners, or people that are upstream or downstream from you in the industry right. are a good way to do it. And so, and you leveraged across countries, you weren't just looking local to find the money. So that's, you know, I repeat that clearly because it's a good reminder for all of us to think creatively about getting them, getting the money. So they, they came in as a partner and, and funded you to start doing the development. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What other mistakes? What are the, well, I was a technical person. I didn't know anything about finance or accounting. So, for example, when the Germans came, they asked me to send a PNL, and I didn't. I had to look up Google to find what PNL is. I mean, that's I was that ignorant. I really didn't know much about finance or accounting. So that means some of the decisions I made were not correct financially, but I learned over time, you know, I, I'm sure that I had, I made many other mistakes along the way, small ones, but again, we just kept learning from them. Yeah, no, that's interesting to talk about is just where you spend your time, how you manage your money, and then how you build your sales force. Cause it also talked like you had some incorrect hires there and you knew to, to, unload them and to make room for bringing on new. Yeah. Well, the thing is for startup at the beginning, I mean, it's difficult to find good salespeople because first of all, you cannot afford them. And second of all, they don't trust you. I mean, they don't want to risk their careers if it's a very successful salesperson. You know, startup, 90% of the startups fail. So it's risky to join a startup. So at the beginning, you know, it's very hard to find really good hunter type of salespeople. But over time, as we kept expanding, we got better and better people. Yeah. So you have, you were talking about the people in the different countries. You've got somebody in the U.S., you've got somebody in Europe. How are you managing them to make sure, like, is there a cohesive culture are you all communicating in English? Do you have similar goals? So how talk to me about your leadership sure. management. Um, well, first of all, the leaders in each, each country is very important. I mean, to have the correct person that sort of manages all the operations there is crucial. Uh, and we have constant meetings. We have like weekly meetings. And then we have monthly meetings where all the regional managers get together and we all talk about, you know, joint plans, common goals. And like in this, this summer, in July, we had a strategy meeting for three days, where again, all the global managers joined. Some of them were able to come to Turkey. Some of them we met remotely. And so that was an alignment meeting, you know, to decide our go-to-market strategy, our product development strategy. So for three days, we talked about different aspects of our strategy. And everybody is aligned after that. Do you find that, you know, so if you could break down the go-to-market strategy, sometimes selling, you know, in a prior interview that I just did with Amy Koningsberg, she was talking about your go-to-market strategy can be very different depending on what country you're in, because the benefits of the messaging are going to be quite different. Do you find differences or do you find that because of what your product is, it's more of a globalized message. 
for us, it's more of a globalized message because, you know, many of our clients have the same problems uh, wherever they are. Some countries, for example, in India, we have more mom and pop shops. So there, you know, it might be slightly different. Uh, but for, I mean, retailers are pretty much the same. Or we work with global companies like Coca-Cola, Unilever, Danone, Henkel, uh, who are pretty much, uh, who have the same criteria, same methods everywhere. So for us, it's not really that different from country to country. So you're doing it all all in English now? Like, are you translating yeah. your website or your... Uh, everything is in English, but like some countries, for example, we work in CIS countries like Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan. There, they prefer Russian speaking. So we have customer success people who speak Russian. It just makes communication easier. So for most countries, English is sufficient, but like we have people who speak German, who speak Spanish, who speak Russian. So you know, that just sort of makes it a little easier for some clients. Okay. And you're such a custom solution for your clients that having that one-to-one person interaction really helps to have a bilingual person there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But most of those companies are global companies and their language is English too. So we don't really run into much many problems. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's just, you know, if you're a tech company providing a high-end solution, you can, it sounds like you can have a lot of success with hiring some bilingual for that, that more detailed orientation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what recommendations would you have for people if they have a product that they want to take international? I think the number one thing is to find a good managing director in the country who knows the region, who knows the field and has good managing capabilities. So, I mean, that's really the most important thing because then he can build a team and he can, you know, with his contacts, he can start developing pipeline. So that's really number one. We write down everything, all the procedures, we, we document everything. So we have a good onboarding strategy for newcomers, for example, or for clients. So people in different countries, they don't have to really worry about details. I mean, everything is documented, everything is ready to go. So for a new person, it takes very little time to get used to what's going on in the company. We give very high importance to documentation. And then just people communication. I mean, we have to constantly communicate and all go towards the same goal. Because if everybody has different goals that they want to achieve, it just doesn't work. I mean, people have to be aligned and you know, agree with the, with the management. Yeah. This has been fascinating to hear your journey. I mean, you've, it's really been impressive with what you've been able to come up with, develop, and then how quickly you've gone internationally. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to share this information and listeners. I hope this has been helpful for you. If you know, somebody has got a tech company that's launching, definitely share. Now I, I always end the podcast by asking, what's your favorite foreign word? I'd say perseverance or resilience. Those are the two things that come to me. Okay, so perseverance and resilience. So for you English yeah. speakers, that's, you know, English. 
Her original language is, is Turkish, so <laughs> that's a foreign word for her. So we keep a very loose definition of that. Okay, so do you have a, a Turkish word that doesn't have a direct translation that would be a fun one to add to our vocabulary? Okay, I would say sabır, which is something like patience, because you have to be very patient with your customers, with your employees, with, with everyone. Yeah, so okay. And sabır, how do you say it? Sabır. S-A-B-I-R. Sabır. Okay. Patience. That's a good one for all you parents out there. That's a very good one too. <laughs> Business owners and parents. Well, I told, thank you so, so much for being on here. And if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to find you? I guess my email, it's, should I write it on the chat? Well, you know uh, spell it out for our listeners. Yeah. A dot E R C I L E as in Edward. C as in Charlie. I as in Istanbul. L as in Neri. At Vispera dot C-O. That's V as in Victor. I as in intelligent. S as in Sam. P as in Peter. E as in export. R as in rocket. A as an apple. Right. So Ursel no. at Vespera.com. No, not com. C-O. Oh, dot C-O. Yep. Okay. Glad you got me on that one. <laughs> All right. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Well, thank you for your time. And it's really been a pleasure to get to know you. And I look forward to seeing you again. Well, thank you so much. And so remember, anybody, if you've got a connection into a retailer, particularly Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, Kroger, they definitely need to connect with Atul and learn about her program. So forward this along to them, make an introduction, um, and remember to subscribe so you see when we release a new episode, which happens weekly. Au revoir. Thank you so much for turning in. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.